Well, Christina works about two days a month as a physical therapist, and when she's at the hospital, I usually have the kids. And so here's how that often goes. Okay, kids, today we have some work to do. Uh, We need to clean the house, fold and put away the laundry, and I need to mow the lawn. We need to bust it. Isn't that what I say sometimes? We need to bust it. That's daddy law. Uh, That's daddy unilaterally setting the conditions of a good and fair agreement with his kids. There are blessings for obedience. Watching a movie. A happy daddy. Uh, Praise for their hard work. A feeling of satisfaction for a job well done. A clean house and an honored mommy when she comes back from work. There are also curses for disobedience, no movie, all right, continuing work, a a displeased daddy, stern words from daddy, guilt from shirking their duty, and no honored mommy. Now, we could call this a covenant, and we could go further and call it a covenant of works because obedience brings rewards and disobedience brings penalties. Now, we don't call this a covenant in our home, but that's what it is. Remember my daddy covenant law. Daddy law covenant. Remember that. There are three essential themes in this series. God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign covenants, and God's sovereign grace. Don't forget them. Here's where we've been so far. Week one, our one triune relational God. God is three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, each person perfectly loving the other within the Trinity. Week two, how God reveals himself to his people. The Bible is God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word and self-revelation. The Bible is how God communicates who he really is. Weeks three and four, God is sovereign. God possesses absolute supremacy in and over everything, meaning he rules and he reigns supremely. God also possesses absolute efficacy in and over everything, meaning he has a good plan, is working out his good plan, and nothing can thwart his good plan. Week five, God's sovereign covenant of redemption, which is unique. It's an intra-Trinitarian covenant between the Father, Son, and Spirit. God is the master builder of redemption and has an eternal blueprint for redemption. The Father designs redemption, the Son accomplishes redemption, and the Holy Spirit applies redemption to God's people. I also mentioned two other big-picture covenants, the covenant of works... And the covenant of grace. Remember the definition of covenant from last time, a solemn bond between two or more persons. A good definition. And I'd like to expand that definition a bit as we leave the covenant of redemption and we head into the covenant of works. What is a covenant? John T. Rhodes in his book Covenants Made Simple says this, A covenant is an agreement between God and human beings where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and threatens curses if the conditions are broken. Well, simple enough, okay? Daddy law covenant, right? 
A covenant is an agreement between God and human beings where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and threatens curses if the conditions are broken. Now, there's a lot that goes into understanding the concept of covenant. But keep that basic definition in your mind, and friend, you are well on your way to getting it. Covenant is integral to redemption because it weaves uh, from Genesis through Revelation. This is why J.I. Packer said, the gospel of God, the word of God, and the reality of God are not properly understood till they are viewed within a covenantal frame. Covenant helps us understand the gospel, the gospel So we turn our attention to the second of the big picture covenants, God's sovereign covenant of works, a covenant that will help you better understand important truths like God's holiness and justice, evil and suffering in the world, the corruption of your own desires and actions, your desperate need of a savior. The covenant of works prepares you to see more of the beauty, power, and love of the person and work of Jesus Christ and positions you to adore and appreciate Christ more as your great covenant keeper. What is the covenant of works? Here's one way of thinking about it. The covenant of works equals law. The covenant of grace equals gospel. There is a distinction between law and and gospel, and you need to know the difference. Here's how Zacharias Ursinus distinguished law and gospel. Listen carefully. The law contains the covenant of nature established by God with man in creation. That means it is known by man from nature. It requires perfect obedience of us to God And it promises eternal life to those who keep it, but threatens eternal punishment to those who do not. That's the covenant of works. Obey perfectly, receive eternal life. Disobey at all, receive eternal punishment. Our creator rightly set the conditions of this covenant with us from the beginning. Your sinus then explained the covenant of grace showing the difference between law and gospel. Your sign is continued. The gospel, however, contains the covenant of grace. That means, although it exists, it is not known at all from nature. It shows us Christ's fulfillment of that righteousness which the law requires and its restoration in us through Christ's Spirit. And it promises eternal life freely on account of Christ to those who believe in him, end of quote. Your sinus was saying that the law is different than the gospel. The law demands perfect obedience and exposes any disobedience at any point. The gospel shows the perfect obedience of Christ and demands faith through which Christ's righteousness is freely given or imputed. A covenant keeper under the law is a person who obeys perfectly, Absolutely perfectly, no error whatsoever. A covenant keeper in the gospel is a person who trusts Christ alone for righteousness. Big, big difference. We'll get into the coming, uh, get into the covenant of grace in the coming weeks, 
But for now, understand that the law is different from the gospel. Um, That's huge. Both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace promise life. But how life is attained in each covenant is entirely different. The covenant of works, obey perfectly and live. The covenant of grace, trust Christ alone and live. What is the covenant of works? The Westminster Confession of Faith is clear and succinct. It says this, The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works in which life was promised Adam and in him to his descendants on condition of perfect and personal obedience. In other words, obey and live or disobey and die. Pretty simple. Michael Brown and Zach Keel express the same thing in these terms. We can define the covenant of works as God's commitment to give Adam and his posterity in him eternal life for obedience or eternal death for disobedience. That's the covenant of works. Now the question is, is the covenant of works in Scripture? If it was invented by doctors of divinity in their ivory towers and imposed onto the text, then we should reject it right away. Don't believe it. But if it is rightly extracted from the text, it will be in the text, and we should then believe it. So is it there is the question. Well, Genesis 1 through 3. You might want to have your Bibles open to Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, These three chapters are historical fact and essential in understanding the gospel. If you remove Genesis 1 through 3, Christianity falls apart. You don't have it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The one triune relational God created everything with the eternal plan of redemption in mind. Creation was headed towards the glorification of God's Son, As sovereign redeemer and king, creation was headed towards a redeemed people loving and serving Christ forever. When God said, let there be light, he was moving creation towards the cross and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, his son. As God created the universe, you'll notice that it was good. It was good. And after he created humanity, his crown jewel, God saw that his creation was Very good, very good. And Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then God blessed them. And notice that God's blessing came in the form of a command. Isn't that interesting? Listen to the blessing. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam and Eve were created into a covenant relationship with God. They they bore his image and they were immediately blessed by God. 
God gave them the world. God gave them everything in the world. And he gave them specific things to accomplish. And their perfect obedience would allow them to continue to enjoy God's blessings. Dr. Ligon Duncan said this, quote, The enjoyment of the blessing is in the fulfillment of the command. End of quote. Genesis 2 adds detail. God planted a beautiful garden and put Adam there to work it and to keep it, right in the garden. And at the center of that garden were two very important trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Listen to what God told Adam in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now notice how God began his command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. What a tremendous blessing in a command. The the world is yours, Adam. The garden is yours, Adam. Enjoy this garden. Eat the delicious produce of the land. But God set a good and a just law to display his sovereignty, his rule, his supremacy, his reign. Don't eat from that one tree. And with that law came the warning of penalty, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now let's consider the tree of life in the middle of the garden for a moment. Considering Adam was already living, a living being, what was the purpose of the tree of life? Have you ever thought about that? If Adam ate from the tree of life, what life would he gain that he didn't already have? Well, many scholars agree the tree of life was a sign of the covenant of works. That if Adam obeyed God perfectly for a period of time, for a probation period, he would be allowed to eat of the tree of life and enjoy, here it is, eternal life. Eternal life. John Calvin said God gave Adam and Eve the tree of life as a guarantee of immortality that they might assure themselves of it as long as they should eat of its fruit. If Adam obeyed God in his probation period... If Adam proved faithful, God would have changed Adam, pay attention to this, this is important, from able to perfectly obey to not able to disobey. Did you get that? Adam could have chosen to obey or could have chosen to disobey, but at a certain point, God had held out in the tree of life the ability to never, ever, ever even have the potential of disobeying. A glorious change inside of Adam. God would have allowed Adam to eat from the tree of life, a glorious reward of eternal life with no possibility of falling. And not only is this implied in the text, but consider Genesis 3.22. If you turn there for a moment, it says this, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Live forever. That's very important. That tree promised something Adam did not already have. 
and understand what death means in Genesis 2. It isn't simply six feet under, folks. It's more. You shall surely die in Genesis 2.17 is contrasted with living forever in Genesis 3.22. Therefore, death is physical, spiritual, and eternal death. The just penalty for breaking God's law at any point is physical, spiritual, and eternal death. Lawbreakers, whatever the degree will suffer the just condemnation of God in hell forever. A threat. So the tree of life was a sign that pledged eternal life for Adam and his descendants as long as Adam obeyed God's law perfectly. Now back to Genesis 2, 16 and 17. God gave blessing. All is yours, Adam. God gave conditions. Enjoy everything, but not the one tree. God warned of penalties. Eat from the forbidden tree and you'll die. And there was a logical implication in all of that. If you obey my law, you will live. There was even a sign. Now, what does all that sound like? A covenant. A covenant. But there was more law in this narrative. Humans, if you think about it, were to populate the earth, to work, build, create, cultivate and explore, travel, discovery, science, cities, art, music, literature, commerce, agriculture. It was all included for the glory of God and blessing of humanity. There was more to the earth than the garden. God gave humans dominion over all the earth. Adam and Eve were blessed by God's command to be fruitful and multiply, to fill and subdue the earth, to work and steward creation well. So God's law was more than lay off the tree. It was do everything that I've created you to do. Do it for my glory and do it for your good. John T. Rhodes helped me understand this. He wrote this. The condition was perfect obedience, positively to obey the cultural mandate, and negatively not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This means Adam could break the covenant either by pinching the fruit or by sitting on his backside and doing nothing to obey God. Both would scar the image of God, of the God role that he'd been given. And Adam, who lied to his wife, refused to do any work, murdered his children, and ignored the worship of God, but who didn't eat the forbidden fruit, could hardly have protested that he hadn't broken the covenant. End of quote. Now that's helpful. I love reading stuff like that, because I was like, I don't think I've ever thought of it that way before, but that's helpful. That's the covenant of works. The covenant of works promises eternal life to everyone who perfectly and perpetually obeys God's law, not partial obedience, not almost obedience, not most of the time obedience, not I did my best obedience, but perfect and perpetual obedience to God's good law. God's law demands perfection. And imperfection at any point brings physical, spiritual, and eternal death. How are you doing with that? Leviticus 18.5 expresses this covenantal truth. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. 
That's repeated in the New Testament. Is it not the doers of the law who will be justified? Galatians 3.12 says, But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Obey, live. Disobey, die. How are you doing with that? What is God's sovereign covenant of works telling you? It tells you that if you obey God's law perfectly and perpetually, God will grant you the blessing of eternal life with him. It also tells you that if you disobey God's law even one little time, you will suffer physical, spiritual, and eternal death beneath the righteous judgment of God. How are you doing with that? To be fair, you won't find the term covenant until Genesis 6. Now, does that disprove what I'm saying here? That's a good question. Consider these few thoughts. Were there multiple persons involved? Yes. God and human beings. Were there promises and blessings? Yes. Genesis 1 and 2 are filled with promises and blessings, both explicit and implicit. Were there conditions? Yes. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Were there threats of penalties? Yes, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Was there a sacramental sign? Yes, the tree of life was a sign and a pledge of eternal life and blessing upon perfect obedience. What do we call that? Whether the word covenant is there or not, those are the elements of a covenant, a biblical and historical covenant. Now, before we get too bent out of shape about a missing word, consider that the words sin or transgression or iniquity are not in Genesis 1 through 3 either. But sin is absolutely there. Even the language of Genesis 6, when you get into that, and we're we're headed there, where covenant is very first mentioned, seems to suggest that there was a previous covenant in place. Let me show you two texts that I believe authenticate the covenant of works outside of Genesis 1 through 3. Turn to Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24, verses 5 and 6. Isaiah prophesied about God's judgment upon all the inhabitants of the earth, everybody. And Isaiah pictured the whole earth mourning and withering, languishing beneath God's judgment. And here's verses 5 and 6, Isaiah 24, verses 5 and 6. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. What brought a curse to the earth and guilt for for humanity? Was it not Adam's fall? And here, Isaiah connected the transgression of laws, the violation of statutes, and the breaking of an everlasting covenant, all of which led to curse and guilt. 
When you consider Romans 5, which we'll get to in a bit, where Adam is shown as the federal head or the representative of all humanity, and when you consider that every human being sinned in Adam, Isaiah 24, verses 5 and 6, seems to be a striking reference to God's sovereign covenant of works with Adam and his posterity. The next text, Hosea 6, 7. Now, this text is debated And guess who's not going to solve the debate this morning? Your pastor. I'm not going to solve it. But listen to the verse. Hosea prophesied, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now, does the term Adam refer to the man or, like Joshua 3.16, a city? Scholars are on both sides. Here's why I think Hosea 6 verse 7 is a reference to Adam breaking the covenant of works. In the ESV of the times where the Hebrew word Adam is translated Adam, unambiguously 19 out of 21 times it refers to the man, Adam. Joshua 3.16 clearly refers to a place, and then the other one is Hosea 6.7. So off the bat, the most natural reading would be Adam the man, not the place. Additionally, the Bible says very, very little about Adam the city. Joshua 3.16 suggests that Israel wasn't even in the city of Adam, nor does it say that Israel broke any covenant at Adam. Adam the city is a minor detail in that passage. Also, in Hosea 6.7, the preposition used is most naturally translated like Adam, or as Adam, or in the same way as Adam. The NIV, if you have it, wrongly interprets the preposition as at Adam, which is a stretch for the word. Also, if Adam is referring to the people who lived in the city, nothing in Scripture describes the people of Adam breaking any covenant. Later in chapter 8, verse 1, Hosea connected Israel's transgression of God's covenant with rebelling against God's law. So when Hosea 6, 7 says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, same type of language, it is more than likely that Hosea was referring back to the covenant of works where Adam transgressed God's good law might have to listen to the sermon again to get that one. All right. Romans 5. Turn to Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, an important text for the covenant of works. In this passage, Paul described Adam as the federal head or the representative of all humanity and Christ as the federal head or the representative of God's chosen people. There's a contrast being shown. You can study it on your own, but listen to verses 12 and then 18 and 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Adam and Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22, echoes the idea of Adam's and Christ's federal headship. It says this, For as by a man came death, 
By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There's a contrast that Paul is is giving here. Might Paul's reference to Christ's act of righteousness and obedience refer to the covenant of redemption and fulfillment of the covenant of works? The Son obeyed the Father in order to redeem His chosen people. Therefore, there is a contrast between Adam the covenant breaker and Christ the covenant keeper. Adam disobeyed bringing death. Christ obeyed bringing life. Take away the covenant of works and Paul's connection of Adam and Christ is essentially gone here. Now next time we'll explore the doctrine of total depravity and how Adam and Eve broke the covenant of works by eating from the forbidden tree. But for now, I hope that you see in the text that God sovereignly initiated a covenant with Adam whereby his obedience would merit life and his disobedience would merit death. But who cares? Who cares? Honestly, what difference does this make? And that is a very important question because this is a complete waste of time on a perfectly good Sunday morning if there is no direct application to our lives. Friends, this is so relevant and applicable. I just hope you get this. I hope you're tracking. And if not, I hope you study your eyes out until you track with it. This is so important. The covenant of works shows you the holiness, sovereignty, justice, and goodness of God and his law. The covenant of works explains evil and suffering in the world. Darwinism has no explanation for sin and suffering and evil. In fact, within Darwinism, there is no basis from which to differentiate good and evil. Darwinism has to borrow from Christianity to make any case for the distinction between good and evil because the covenant of works was and is broken. It is broken, and because it is broken, marriages and families collapse. Children are aborted and abused. Pollution and war ravage the earth. Drugs and violence fill the streets and loved ones die. The continued violation of God's covenant of works explains why life isn't going as it should. The covenant of works explains the evil desires in your heart and mind and mind. Why you trample on others to get what you want. You have broken God's sovereign covenant of works. You've broken it. You've broken his law. Apart from Christ, dear friend, you are a covenant breaker who deserves God's righteous judgment. The covenant of works exposes your desperate need of a Savior. You need someone to show up and rescue you from your sin and misery, from the curse of the law. The covenant of works reveals that only perfect people go to heaven. 
All the imperfect people die in their sins. But here's what I hope hits home for you, and if you're paying attention to what I am saying, you should get this. The covenant of works prepares you to see the beauty and power and love of the person and work of Jesus Christ and positions you to cherish Him, to treasure Him, to value Him, to love Him. Is there hope for covenant breakers? Is there a way for imperfect lawbreakers to have eternal life? And the answer is unequivocally, yes. Jesus Christ is the way. He is God's redemptive plan. Adam would break the covenant of works, bringing death to humanity, but in love and in mercy, God appointed His precious Son to come and perfectly obey the covenant of works for His people in order to grant them His righteousness, to grant them eternal life. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Before we ever get to the cross where God's Son died for the forgiveness of sins, we must go to the life of Jesus Christ. He did more than die. So so many Christians just jump right to the cross and they miss the fact of what He did prior to the cross. He lived for us before He died for us. Think carefully now. The cross would be meaningless and powerless to save anyone if Christ has not, had not perfectly obeyed the covenant of works. His perfect obedience makes him the only person worthy of heaven. Do you understand that? The only person who's going to get there is Christ. He merited it. Everyone else is worthy of God's wrath and condemnation. So He is the pathway. He is the gateway to eternal life. Jesus Christ is the great covenant keeper. He fulfilled the covenant of works. When God said, obey and live, Jesus did joyfully with all of His heart. Jesus passed the test. Jesus fulfilled every condition and demand of God's law. Jesus merited eternal life. Jesus is eternal life because Jesus Christ is entirely righteous, entirely blameless, entirely virtuous, entirely spotless, and entirely guiltless. And because he became sin and because he is the spotless atoning sacrifice for sin and guilt and because he suffered the penalty of hell in his body and soul He alone is the righteousness we need to see God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Him, in Him, in Him, in Him, in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. You are not righteous unless you are in Christ. And when you are in Christ, God grants you the righteousness of Christ as a gift through faith and you are rendered righteous. If you are in Christ, God looks at you and sees perfection, not because of you, but because He's looking through His Son. Only perfect people go to heaven. And if you are in Christ and you are with Christ, it's yours. Because you are made perfect in Him. In Him. In Christ. You must be in Christ. Or you are not righteous. 
Do you want to be free from the curse and penalty of breaking God's law? Trust in Christ and be united to him. Do you want to be free from the burden of your sin and misery? Trust in Christ and be united to him. Do you want to enjoy the promise of eternal life with God? Trust in him and be united to him. You must have Christ to be reckoned perfectly righteous by God and therefore fit for heaven. Without him, you're not fit. You won't fit in. It won't be right for you without Christ. Please listen carefully. If your assurance of salvation is your ability to obey the covenant of works, you're not a Christian and you will die in your sin. Your good works are not enough. Your good intentions are not enough. Your good effort is not enough. Why? Because the covenant of works demands perfection that you don't have and I don't have. The beauty of the covenant of works is that it drives us to Christ who is our perfection, our covenant keeper. Christ is your assurance. Christ is your guarantee. Christ is your security. Flee to Christ and trust in Him so that all the blessings of His covenant keeping are yours through faith. Friends, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're not in both. If you're in Adam, you are still in your sins and you are still under the curse of the covenant of works because you're a lawbreaker. So trust Christ. Run to Christ. If you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, oh, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, he has freed you from your sin, freed you from the penalty of God's law. You now belong, both body and soul, to Christ. And all the blessings of his covenant keeping are yours forever. No one's going to take them from the... They're they're yours. Enjoy them. Brother and sister, enjoy them. So trust Christ. Trust Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? I really hope you do. I really hope you get this because what I'm saying is gospel. This is the gospel, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There is one who died for me, yet much before he lived, his righteousness my surety, his joy to grant and give. There is a gift better than all other gifts, Christ, the fulfillment of God's sovereign covenant of works. Receive him by faith. Be united to him by faith. Treasure him, enjoy him, prize him, love him, adore him, serve him. All because of him, you are counted righteous by God, and you have eternal life. You have eternal life. Father, we thank you for the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness, who is our covenant keeper, who is our law keeper, the one who did it all by himself on our behalf.
We have no righteousness to bring you, God. Our lives are filled with sin and rebellion against your good law. There is no good person on planet earth. All deserve to perish. And people need to see. They need to see the supremacy of Christ. They need to hear the good news of the gospel that there is one who died as a perfect sacrifice for sin. He was the only one who could do it. And if anyone wants to see God, if anyone wants to see you, Father, who is glorious, they're going to need to see you through Christ, in Christ. They need that vital union with the Savior Who is their righteousness or they'll never see. They'll perish in their sin. We don't want that, God. We plead with you to save your people from their sin through Christ, who is so precious. I pray that my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning would see the preciousness of Jesus and see that he is their righteousness, that he is the fulfillment of the covenant of works, that they would depend not at all on what they do, which can earn nothing to you. They are loved because you and Almighty Father give your love through Christ. It is because of their union with Christ that they are loved. And help those who are still in Adam, lost and trapped in their sin, with no joy, no true joy, no true hope, no true security or assurance. They are dangling over the pit of hell by a string. And I pray that they see their sin and wickedness, that you expose it to them, that you tell them that they are still in Adam, they are breakers of the covenant, and God, by your gospel, call them to repentance and faith. Call them to run to the Savior, to find themselves loved by an almighty God. God, I'm praying with urgency that you do a work in Jerusalem church and in the world by the preaching of your gospel that people would be saved and then grow in Christ to find him more precious day by day because of how he kept the covenant for them. God, do your work by your spirit. We love you, and we love your son, and we love your spirit, and we're so glad to be in union with you, to be one with you through Christ. In his precious name we pray, amen.